This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning morning to everyone who's online. Looks like my head is not cut off this time, so you can see me. I want to first thank everybody who's here for the retreat. There are a lot of newish people who have demonstrated what Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind, the mind that is not an expert, the mind that doesn't know and receives and responds. So thank you all, whether you're serving or doan or sitting, eating, uh, there's a lot of new information <laughs> to absorb. It's a joy to practice with all of you. So my talk today is called An Appropriate Response. So here's a statement I want to share with you. It's a kind of poem. It is a poem. Boundless wind and moon, the eye, this kind of eye, right? The eye within eyes, inexhaustible, heaven and earth, the light beyond light, the willow dark, the flower bright, 10,000 houses. Knock at any door, there's one who will respond. So I'll read it again. Boundless wind and moon, the eye within eyes, inexhaustible heaven and earth, the light beyond light, the willow dark, the flower bright, 10,000 houses. Knock at any door, there's one who will respond. So this statement, this poem, is part of an introduction to a collection of ancient stories, their teaching stories, which are called koans. And they're from a collection of such stories called the Blue Cliff Record. There are several collections of these stories, but this one uh, is the one I'm drawing on mostly from today. All the stories in it come from Tang Dynasty China, which is a galaxy long ago and far away for us. <laughs> you know, it's almost a thousand years ago, more than a thousand years ago for some of these stories. And this collection, this particular collection, was made and circulated in the 12th century of our era, the common era. So it's a long time ago too, 800 years. And um, it was collected in China by monk scholars who also commented on these stories. So the poem is part of one of these uh, commentaries. And it was brought from China to Japan by the founder of our particular lineage of practice, our Zen school, we call it the school. And the name of that person was Dogen, Eihei Dogen. Um, who lived in the 13th century. So about 100 years after the collection was made, it was brought from China to Japan by a Japanese monk. So that's about 700 years ago. Right? So this is kind of the story of Buddhism. It like goes from country to country and different 
ways of practicing go from country to country, culture to culture. Sometimes the leap is fast, but often it's hundreds of years. And I, I like to keep that in mind when I think about our American Zen. Hasn't been here that long. And the story about how Dogen brought it from, from China to Japan is that he got his hands on a copy the night before he returned from China to Japan. It's a big, thick book, a hundred stories, right? <laughs> With commentaries and everything else. The story is he stayed up all night copying it before he got back on the boat to come home, right? So this is one of those miraculous stories, but he obviously thought it was very important. So the word respond appears in that poem, right? Knock at any door, there's one who will respond. So the kickoff to all hundred stories in this collection has that word in it. Right? Someone knocks. You do. I do. We all do. And someone responds. So maybe a question or questions arise. Right? What is knocking? What, what is knocking? Who is knocking? Is it a question that's knocking? Is knocking itself a question? Anybody home? Right. Who and what responds? And is the response an answer? Right. These are the questions if you just let the story, which is very short, that I'm about to read you, it's about response, but even just this one line, you know, could set up a whole series of questions. So it's challenging us a little bit to consider this call and response. So there's a story, there are actually two stories in this collection that are about just this. And the first one is number 14. And it features a famous and eminent teacher whose name is Yunmen in Chinese. The Japanese call him Umman. And the name means cloud gate. Cloud gate. Sometimes it's interesting to hear these names and understand what they actually mean. Right? All these Zen teachers have names that mean something. And many koans are long, kind of, you know, involved stories, but this is extremely short. Here it is. A monk, the, the poor monks who ask questions, they almost never have names. But anyway, some monk asked Cloud Gate, what are the teachings of a whole lifetime? And Yunmen, or Umman, said, an appropriate statement or an appropriate response. That word statement can be translated in a number of ways. It can be a spoken statement, it can be a response. There are three Chinese characters, actually, that make up this word. And literally, it means, the three characters mean teaching before one. Teaching facing one. So, what is this one? <laughs> More questions. But I've liked this story since I first encountered it because it hits me directly, right? All the teachings, all the teachings of your lifetime, my lifetime, distilled into responding, answering, saying something, something like that, 
right here, right now. Right? Frequently in these koans, some hapless student shows up and the teacher asks them for an answer and they, you know, grabs them by the throat, by the robes and yells, speak, speak. <laughs> right? That's what they're asking for. Express yourself. And reading this short story, it kind of cuts off debate. It, it leaves me nowhere. Right? Somebody asks you a question, you're like, uh, <laughs> uh, right? Having to respond, having to say something, usually we're asked to respond in words. But immediately, you know, the question arises, like, what is appropriate? And so there's a question about, is, it a, is there a question here? And what is an appropriate response? Because, you know, think about it. At least I feel this way. We usually worry about doing or saying something inappropriate. And then, you know, like we're embarrassed or we've hurt somebody, right? Unless we just don't care, right? We make our response and we don't care how it lands. In which case, you know, we may be fooling ourselves, thinking we are free of convention and expectations of others, when maybe we're just indulging our desire to be free of karmic consequences, right? Okay, here's what I have to say about this. Take it or leave it. I don't care, right? That's kind of the attitude of a lot of our culture. You know, our speech is an action, but so, is our, so are our thoughts. Right, there are three kinds of karmic response or karmic action. Speech, deeds, things we do, and our thoughts are all considered action in Buddhist thought. Right? But what also arises in a Buddhist context is, you know, about response is knowing in some intuitive way, some immediate way, what to do or say, what to offer right, that is true and helpful. That's kind of what we hope this practice is going to do for us. Right? So let me ask you, thinking of appropriate and inappropriate, do you see something here? Is there, what do you think is going on? When I say appropriate and inappropriate, what does that set up for you? Appropriate, inappropriate. Good and bad. Good and bad. Duality. Duality. Binary. Binary. <coughs> Speak. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. A container. I thought you had your hand up. No. <laughs> well, thank you for responding. That <laughs> I don't know what appropriate or inappropriate is actually without a context. Yeah, without a context. Without a context. So. The duality thing is important, right? It is setting up this question of like, oh, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And all of these stories are trying to point us away from duality. Right? So, let's continue. I'm going to quote from a Zen teacher um, in the Ordinary Mind School. His name is Barry Majid. And he comments on this koan. And he says this. He says, when we think about what appropriate usually means, we think of it in an ordinary sense. 
right, as appropriate to the circumstances. Like, oh, what's the appropriate thing? Like something like skillful means. Do people are people familiar with that term in Buddhism? Skillful means. It, in Sanskrit, it's upaya. It means often skillful means, and it usually is interpreted as something that meets the situation. It's something that's fitting to the situation. And skillful means something that will be effective in meeting it in a way that is in accord with the Dharma, that shows people something. Skillful means. And it's sort of manipulative. (laughs) It can be manipulative if you're, you know, sitting in the teaching seat. But it's meant to turn people away from their received, hardened views. Trying to open up something another possibility or possibilities. So, he says, something like skillful means a response that takes into consideration who the person is, what their situation is, what they're capable of understanding. Are they a simple person? That's his term. Are they an intellectual? Right. So that's one way of thinking about this, is that an appropriate response is like skillful means, right? You will sort of see what's arising and make a considered response. This would be good. I think this would be good. But Majid says, I think that if, that if that's all that Yun Men meant here, it wouldn't be preserved as a koan in this collection. It might be a good teaching, right? Upaya. There's an entire monastery in New Mexico named Upaya. <laughs> but, Magid says, we would not see it in the Blue Cliff record if it were so simple and straightforward. Right? And that seems right to me. And the ancient commentators on this koan actually warned against conventional ideas of what appropriate meant as well. For example, there's a whole set of stories about how the Buddha taught over his lifetime, because it's a lifetime. He taught in stages, it is said, five stages. First he tried to just express directly what he realized on his enlightenment, and people didn't really understand it in words. So he kept unfolding the Dharma, and this corresponds to different sutras or teachings of his. And the the higher or later stages are the ones that we tend to chant. The Wisdom Sutras, the Prajna Paramita Sutras, the Lotus Sutra, the complicated, hard to understand ones, right? And this is said to be in accordance with how those he encountered responded to his teaching. Oh, that didn't go over very well. Let me try something else, right? And then as people began to understand more and more subtlety in his teaching, he challenged them further and further, right? unfolding the Dharma further and further. But this is only one way to understand this appropriate word. Majid says, appropriateness is not just shaping our words or other actions, like speech is an action, right, to fit the circumstances. Majid says it's not skillful means. That's not the deeper meaning of the koan. And unfortunately, It's not some magical Zen ability that we are going to cultivate so as to produce a spontaneous and brilliantly enlightened response every time, right, to whatever arises. We like to think, maybe it helps bring us into this room, 
that if we get really good at this Zen thing, right, if we sit and sit and study and sign up for retreats and, you know, become doans and all, all of that, right, go further and further into commitment to practice, eventually <laughs> we'll be flawlessly spontaneous and without thinking we'll come up with the appropriate response. But it's not that, unfortunately. Sorry, you're probably all going to leave now. But <laughs> So the ancient Chinese compiler of the Blue Cliff Record, so this is from Tang Dynasty China straight to us. Right? They were human beings just like us. He says, members of the Zen family, if you want to know the meaning of Buddha nature, right, of Buddha being, you must observe times and seasons, causes and conditions, right? This is reality. He says about this observation, just observing. This is called the special transmission outside the teachings, by which he means outside the written teachings. He calls it the soul transmission of the mind seal, S-E-A-L. And it's not, you know, the animal with flippers, right? the stamp of Buddha's mind, directly pointing to the human mind for the perception of nature and realization of Buddhahood. Right, so this is the preaching of Bodhidharma, the Indian monk who brought Zen from India to China, and then from China it went to Japan. A special transmission outside the scriptures, pointing directly. Yan Wu continues, for 49 years, old Shakyamuni, that's the guy on the altar, Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha, stayed in the world. He stayed in the world. That means after he woke up to reality. And he offered his teaching until his death. Right, so he was a young man in his 30s when he had his experience of awakening, and then he taught for the rest of his life for about 50 years. He taught at 360 assemblies, right, gatherings of monks and lay people. He expounded the sudden and the gradual, the temporary and the true. Right, these are, this is meant to encompass everything, all phenomena, all teachings. These are what are called the teachings of a whole lifetime. The monk, in this case, the unnamed monk, picked this out, the teachings of a lifetime, to ask, what are the teachings of a lifetime, of a whole lifetime, right? How can you summarize this? And this ancient commentator says, why didn't Cloudgate or Yunmen, why didn't this master explain for the monk in full detail, but instead said to him, an appropriate response is the teaching of a whole lifetime. Why didn't he say, well, you know, here it is, in words? It's because it's not in the words. So this tracks, this commentator, tracks with the same question or same, yeah, the same summation that Barry Magic poses, right? The monk in the story is asking about the entirety of the Buddhist teaching, which fills rooms, right, of sutras and commentary. There are formal lectures. He's, he taught in words, but he also lived his life and his teaching was in that. He walked all over northern India. He begged for his food. 
He had one robe and one bowl. Those were his possessions. And maybe a razor and a needle and thread to repair the, you know, things proliferate. But anyway, he had very little. He had almost nothing. And he offered teachings, sometimes without words. And he stayed in this world helping others with his teaching until he died at age 80. And really, this understanding of Buddha's life as a whole, or seamless, is part of the point. You can't find any gap. His life includes everything, whether he's speaking, walking, eating, lying down, sleeping, visiting a sick monk, mixing it up with lay people. You can forget stages. You can forget skillful means. It's like reality itself, Buddha's life. It's not this, it's not that. It's beyond concepts, it's beyond discussion. It's just life, living life. And the whole purpose of koans is to point to this reality, to non-duality, to transcending or closing the gap between this and that, to upend our polarities and our judgments And this is usually done in these stories in an encounter with someone else, right? A monk asks a teacher some question, right? Knocks at the door, and there's a response. But still, who is this one who responds, and to whom is she responding? So there's another koan, a short koan, in the same collection. The very next one, as it turns out, number 15, which... Again, the monk is nameless, but the commentators all agree it's the same monk. So it's like part two of this encounter. Same monk, same teacher. Right? It's like a continuation of the one that we just looked at. And it's a little mystifying at first to hear it. So a monk, same guy, asks Yunmen. When it's not the present intellect, or the present thinking maybe, and it's not the present phenomena, which is just another way of saying what's happening. What is it? And this time Yunmen said, an upside-down statement. <laughs> an upside-down statement. So according to the translators, these are two brothers named Thomas and J.C. Cleary, who uh, were both scholars and translated many of these sutras and collections, They say, the monk in this case is supposed to be the same as in the 14th. The teachings of the age are devised and established according to the state of the intellect and total capacity of the hearers in terms of the phenomenal situation. So they're going for the kind of skillful means, right? Something that's devised, something that's fabricated. However, they point out that there is a Japanese commentator who says about this, that this monk had actually, by now, by the time he asked this question, seen that there is nothing outside of mind, that all things are empty. In other words, he actually had seen something of non-duality. He had resolved this apparent conflict. And yet he's still talking about, you know, present mind, present phenomena. So the upside-down response responds to this apparently more advanced view, right? The monk has actually understood something and is trying still to ask the same question. But I think it also plays with the way Chinese expresses the idea of response, teaching to one. 
that one is not an idea. It's not some idea of teaching, right? It's whatever is arising in front of you. In this case, it's a monk with a question. That's teaching to one. Teaching upside down freely meets all mixed up ideas. It, uh, it transcends any dualities and it completely meets the questioner, right? Well, maybe I'll try it upside down. Maybe you'll get it then. <laughs> the response is actually limitless. It can go sideways, it can go upside down, it can stand on its own two feet, it can keep quiet, right? Whatever, it meets whatever is arising. And in fact, it arises with what's arising. So, there's one other version of the story, and it's in the collection that Dogen made, right? He's the Japanese monk who brought all these stories in the Blue Cliff Record to Japan. He collected 300 of them, so beyond the Blue Cliff Record, he collected a whole bunch, and he made his own collection to teach from. And he conflates the two stories into one story. So this is number 95 in his collection. And this is how he tells this story. He says, Yunmen was once asked by a monk, what is the Buddha's teaching of a lifetime? Right? Same question. And Yunmen said, he, faces, he teaches facing one. Right? Or he makes an appropriate response. But I like this literal Chinese translation in this case. But the monk doesn't stop this time. The monk says, and this is the second story, what happens if he has no listener and nothing to talk about? <laughs> what happens if he has no listener or nothing to talk about? Right, that lands rather differently than Cleary saying present intellect and present phenomena. Right? No listener, nothing to talk about. And then Yunmen said, he teaches upside down. <laughs> right? He upends all views, perfectly liberated from any expectation. Again, this may feel like a reference to skillful means, but all these narrative threads actually key into one more story, and it's a transmission story, right? The koans are kind of like parables, and once you start reading them, you start to see how much they refer to each other and offer some of the same characters over and over again. Yunmen appears quite often, for example. So this last story that I'm going to tell you, which is an important story for Zen people, is not in the Blue Cliff Record, but uh, it's in a different collection called The Gateless Gate, and it's case 22 if you want to go look at it yourself. So there are two characters that are different now, two interlocutors. Kashyapa, who is the person that the Buddha entrusted the Dharma to, the leadership and the transmission of his teaching before he died, and Ananda, who is the next successor. So Ananda, who's the younger man and a cousin of the Buddha, he was Buddha's attendant, by the way, for 30 years. Ananda goes to Kashyapa, who is now head, Buddha's dead. Kashyapa is in charge. And he says, the world-honored one, who is the Buddha, it's the title of the Buddha, the world-honored one transmitted the robe, which symbolizes the teaching, to you. What else did he transmit to you? <laughs> Even after a lifetime of 
practice, he's not satisfied. And Kashapa answers him and says, Ananda! Ananda says, yes! Kashapa says, knock down the flagpole at the gate. So the flagpole at the gate is every temple had a flagpole and when there was teaching going on or there was debate about the Dharma going on, they raised the flag. Right? They put the flag up. People would say, ah, there's something happening in this temple. Right? So Ananda, he tells him, knock down the flagpole at the gate. And that's the story. So before I offer an explanation or more context, what do you think is going on there? Elliot! <laughs> there are no bounds. Teaching is always going on. There are, I don't know if you could hear him. There is, there are no, there's no special teaching. It's always going on. What else? Maybe that um, he's asking the wrong question. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not the wrong question, but he keeps asking the same question. Right? Yeah, he's carrying a question. And he, he has to get an answer. Usually these people who ask these questions are kind of desperate. <laughs> Tell Ananda. me! For Ananda. For Ananda. Ananda, yeah, more about Ananda in just a second. Ananda is very important. <laughs> what else? Yeah? Is he suggesting to like just end the discussion completely? It's done, yeah. right? The, 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 the teaching is finished. Why would he say that? What response did Ananda make? Elliot! <laughs> An appropriate one. Elliot! <laughs> Elliot! <laughs> the only one he could make. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but what did he actually say? Elliot. In response, at which point? So he says to him, right, he asks the question, and then Kashapa says, Ananda. So I'm saying, yes. thank you. Oh, yes. Right? And then he says, okay, we're done here. Mm. Mm. Right. So that's a kind of question and answer. Right? It's a statement and a response. So the background to this story, taking one step back, is the beginning of our idea of transmission and lineage in our practice. Right? So Buddha's the original teacher, and the, his understanding is entrusted from disciple to disciple, from 500 BCE to now. That is our story. It, it is like a family lineage. Right? These people are not biologically related. Right? They're stu it's, stu it's teacher to student. And so the very beginning is of this lineage, and this is a kind of a myth, but it doesn't matter. A myth is expressing something important, right? Whether it's literally true or not, historically true. We get hung up. This didn't happen. Yeah, it's okay, right? Buddha is teaching on Vulture Peak. It's a place he went frequently, and people would gather for miles. And he holds up a flower. You know the story? Some of you know it, right? He holds up a flower, and he doesn't say anything. He just holds up the flower, right? And it's Mahakashapa who becomes the teacher. He's an older disciple, right? Who was very close to the Buddha. He had a very ascetic practice. He was very tough on himself. Anyway, he smiles, right? And 
he's the only one who does that. He's the only one who makes any response. Everybody else is like looking at the ground saying, I hope he doesn't pick me. Don't ask me any questions. I don't get it. It's all right, though. You know, he probably won't pick me. There are 500 people here. <laughs> right? But Mahakashapa smiles at him. And so the Buddha says, I have the treasury of the true Dharma eye. Right? I have the mind of nirvana, the wondrous mind of nirvana. And I transmit this, or I entrust this, to Mahakashapa. Right? So this dialogue between Mahakashapa and Ananda right, oops, pages in wrong order, is what Ananda is referring to. He's saying, you got the teaching, you got the robe, this is, you know, you got this. But wasn't there something, there must have been something else. What was going on with that flower thing? I've been wondering, <laughs> right? This is the transmission of mind that is symbolized in a robe and sometimes in a bowl, the eating bowl, right, that is the monk's other possession. Now, as I said, Ananda is Buddha's cousin, and he's a lot younger, and he was a Buddha's attendant for decades. And he had perfect recall. This is the interesting thing about him. He remembered everything the Buddha said. And so sometimes if you're reading a sutra, you, it will begin with, thus have I heard. That's Ananda, repeating word for word every sermon of the Buddha. And still, he got it all. He transcribed every bit of that data, and he still didn't fully understand. So the transmission now is from the first generation teacher to the next generation teacher, and it's an encounter, it's an experience, it's not in the words, right? So Majid says, he's, he's telling the story, he says, after the Buddha passed away and Mahakashapa took over the Sangha, Ananda, who had been with the Buddha for many, many years of his life and had this perfect recall for all his teaching, he went to Mahakashapa finally and he said, the Buddha gave you these things, what else? Is there nothing else? There's got to be something else. Right? And as Majid notes, it's really powerful. The perfect memorist still had this question. Right? He heard and retained everything the Buddha said. He was an excellent disciple, totally faithful, right? Brought him, you know, his cup of water every day, brought him the incense, right? Still. I think most of us can identify on some level with Ananda. So why would he ask this question? He just didn't get it. And Majid narrates this pivotal encounter with this paraphrase, this is Majid's word. Mahakashapa looks at Ananda and says, Ananda, right? Ananda, knock, knock. And Ananda says, yes, right? He's waiting for an answer. <laughs> or that's one way of thinking of it. But Mahakashapa says, okay, you got it. Take down the flag, right? Take down the banner. Majid actually adds, take down my teaching flag and put up yours. Right? So Majid says, what was transmitted? Ananda, yes. Do you see? Do you finally see who's knocking, who's answering? Right? When Ananda immediately responds to his own self, his name, right? Mahakashapa basically says, okay, there's nothing else, right? 
There's just this immediacy, this recognition. And that's true of all phenomena that arise, right? It's here. It's here. It's in everything. It's in the flowers. It's in the sun outside. Right? Everything you encounter is you. There's nothing else. There's just this immediacy and this recognition. And the traditional way of telling this story says that when, the, that when this encounter was finished, the robe entered Ananda's skull. Right? It didn't fly magically off Mahakashapa, but the Buddha's teaching entered him completely. Right? He completely woke up, finally, after so many years. And even though he was obviously a vessel of the Dharma, he stayed with it all this time. Right? He knew that there was a way to break through. And Mahakashapa's flag is not needed by Ananda. He can take it down. Right? The transmission is complete. Right? The inquiry is done, so the flag can come down. And for those of you who heard last week's talk with, I think it was last, no, two weeks ago, with um, Heather Martin, the visiting teacher, um, she talked about a koan number 12 in the Gateless Gate, so the same collection, number 12, Zen Master Zuigan, right? Every day, remember this? Zen Master Zuigan called himself every day, right? He would say at a certain point, Zuigan, <laughs> or Master, and he'd answer himself, yes. And he'd say, don't be fooled by others. Right? There are no others. Right? So this is all pointing in the same way. So Majid says, and I'm coming to a close here, with that, somehow Ananda, in recognizing his own name and responding without thought, yes? Right? He got something of the Dharma that he never got, just listening to the words of the Buddha, decade after decade after decade. Right? We can say that Ananda's yes is a quintessentially appropriate response. But what could he have made as an inappropriate response? Right? Didn't he know his own name? It's that kind of immediacy in which you can't get a right answer because there's actually no possibility of having a wrong answer. Appropriate only makes sense if you can contrast it with inappropriate. But in that kind of exchange, there's no way to miss just completely meeting what's right in front of you. Right? As I said, koans are all about non-duality, about not separating from anything that arises. It's about recognizing and expressing it, about resolving apparent dichotomies and separateness. We can't miss. It's our life right in front of us. We can't miss completely expressing who we are in this moment, including, is it this? Is it that? Right? Still you, bringing you forward right here, right now. Majid says, this is our face showing up in the mirror. There's no way we're going to get it wrong. Right? Step in front of a mirror, there you are. So in this case, these masters are like mirrors. Right? Our face is going to be right there. It's going to be shown to us. And whether we're smiling or crying or looking distracted or hiding, it's us. A mirror is always giving an appropriate response to a face in front of it. 
So our practice is recognizing the appropriateness of every response and how much of a whole lifetime of teaching is summed up without fail in each moment's response. The teaching of your lifetime. Is there anything else? That's the end of magic. So call and response come up exactly together. Right? We think of there's a call, ananda, there's a response, yes. But actually, right? when, when you strike something, the sound comes up together with the strike. There's no separation. Call and response come up together. They arise at the same time, not one after the other. That's the reality. This close and this intimate. So don't hesitate to jump off the 100-foot pole. You can't make a mistake. You can't miss. Knock, knock. Yes. <laughs> Who's there? Thank you very much. Yeah, Anne. So I could have a response that's unskillful it's still going to potentially, well, it's still appropriate because it's... It's a response. It's a response. Yeah, it's beyond our thinking about it. And it's beyond our ideas about it. So if I come up behind you and yell, boo, right, and you scream, and then you turn around and say to me, that wasn't very nice, right, your first response is, you know, terror, right? But then I might have to own the impact of my action, right? I might have to say, my intention was just to kind of, like, be playful, but actually you had a heart attack, right? You had, I really frightened you. So we, there are these like waves that sometimes emanate from action, and that's karma, right? So our, we often take refuge in our intention. We say, oh, I didn't mean whatever, right? To hurt you, I didn't mean to insult you, to demean you. And then we like clean it up if we can. We have to own the impact. But your response is just your response. You might turn around laughing, you know, or you might like, oh, <laughs> what was that? What's that about? Right. And because I'm the teacher, you might say, what's she trying to tell me? <laughs> is she commenting on my practice? Yeah. So right away, no matter what arises, all this stuff, our thinking minds engage immediately, right? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Yeah. Well, Would you say that appropriate response is similar to intuition or kind of what comes up immediately before we start thinking about things? That is one way of looking at it. And I think it's useful to try that on. Like, what is your gut telling you? Rather than what is your, what are all the racing thoughts asking from you? Right? Um, but it doesn't mean that it's how to put it, it doesn't make it right, right? Your intuition could be wrong, <laughs> wrong, <laughs> in quotes, right? You might, it might be based on, actually deep down on an idea, like, about what the situation is. So, I mean, I frequently, when I see somebody asking for something, like somebody on the side of the road with a sign, I almost always give them something. 
and I don't know if that's the right thing, but it's a practice of mine to just respond to the request. And I don't know what they're going to do with it. I don't know if their sign is telling a true story. You know, I don't know if the dog that's lying at their feet is their dog. You know, I don't know anything about who they are or what their situation is. But, you know, there's a human being by the side of the road and I try to drop any idea about, you know, who they are. And I try not to calibrate my response on, like, this is a male person, this is a female person, this is a young person, an old person. Uh, you know, like, I just roll down the window and, you know, if I, I mean, sometimes I don't have any cash, right? Because we don't carry cash so much anymore. But I give them something. And that's just kind of practicing with this not knowing and responding. But it wouldn't be inappropriate not to do that either. It's just a response. And sometimes it's not safe. You know, like traffic starts to move. And if I think the light's about to change, I won't do it because I don't want to endanger anybody around me or the person who's going to come running down to try to get whatever it is I'm offering. Yeah. I'm not recommending this either. I'm just saying this is something I do. Right. It's not the right thing to do. It's just a thing I do. Yeah. Would you say the goal is to build uh, like a skillful intuition instead of um, thinking about how um, your response is going to land so much that you like build a practice where your intentions are aligned more often than you happen to always like think about like oh I'm, how was my response versus like I'm living in my practice so my intuition is often in alignment. I think that you can you can align yourself with the intention to be compassionate and often taking a moment to let something arise with you, you know, instead of just like I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm just I'm blundering through my day or through some moment and I'm not really seeing what's arising with me. I think it's, it's kind of good to think about things coming up together, right? Everything is codependently originating, right? We're constant, we are totally in a dependent, codependent, it's kind of a bad word in our culture, but we are co-arising with all things. They're not separate from, separate from us. So when that person by the side of the road appears, they're arising with me as the driver, right? Going by, we're, we're together completely. She's at the side of the road because she knows there will be drivers coming by. And she's hoping somebody will respond. So it's like that comes up together. But if I'm in a hurry and I just zip by or I like, ah, don't want to get involved, right? Then we're separate from what's co-arising. And that's true of everything, actually. Right? But if you work from the from principles of kindness non-separation, then whatever you do will have, you know, and it will be in accord with the, what we call the precepts. Right. And then, you know, other people will respond and we can't control that, right? You know, <clears throat> somebody may throw your money back in your face and say, is that all you got? <laughs> right? 
Elliot. Or, sorry, Ananda. <laughs> yes. Could I, I wanted to reflect a little on what that was like to be asked questions during a Dharma talk. And it's, um, it's kind of wild because it really was like exactly where my practice is. So when I ring bells and I don't hit one and, and there's a moment of terror and fear and shame about not meeting my own standards or, or your standards or this idea of what it should be skillful. But I think the second thing, so that happened here. I mean, you asked and you heard the, the uplift in my answers each time because I'm asking, is that right? Is that right? Is that right? Um, but that's what practice does for me is it lets me sit and watch both parts, watch the answers which are pointing in a direction of my, like, that is my understanding as I understand it. And then, but the really key part of my practice right now is watching my fear of disappointing others show up and knowing that it's going to be okay even if I do. But it's, um, like, there's something in there both the, the having the response and being aware of it somehow lets me sit more and feel like it is an appropriate response. Um, but yeah, the fact that this was, it was a public and very condensed version of like, maybe I'll have this saga over the course of a whole retreat and I miss a bell and I like sit with it and I think about that feeling for days. <laughs> right? And I'll watch and be like, why are you still perseverating on this? Just let it go. Okay, there are no mistakes. Oh, you're, you're now making mistakes about perseverating. But then I mistakes, mistaken about mistakes. <laughs> yeah, but then I just watch all of it. And so this was a very rapid fire, um, fast way. So I wanted to offer that. Thank you for letting me use you. <laughs> it was not planned. <laughs> You happened to be in my line of sight, and I thought you were making, you wanted to make a response. And that was my mistake, but we went with it. No, it's what I wanted. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I think uh, there's a saying about, you know, 99 times miss the mark. 99 times out of 100, we miss the mark. Right? And then there's that hundredth time when we, we completely meet whatever arises together with us. And you know it when it happens, right? You might ring a bell, and of course then the next thing that arises is separation. Oh, that was nice, right? And, right? and, you, and you're sticking to that, that moment. That was like the best bell I've ever rung. And then, you know, that's gone, and you're on to the next bell, and maybe it's a, you know, a whiff, right? Maybe the teacher looks up from her bow and kind of raises an eyebrow, like, where are you now, right? So just Blanche Hartman, who founded this temple, right? Thank you, Blanche Hartman, the first woman abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. She tells a story about putting a, a, a stick of incense in the ash, right? You know, like taking it from the attendant and putting it in the ash, and it, and it was perfect, mm-hmm. right? It went in smoothly. It stood up exactly straight. She felt that she really met the incenser, and immediately she started saying, it's beautiful. And she realized, I've lost this already, right? Because I've thought, not I made a mistake, but like, that was brilliant. So there was, there's the person, there's the incense, and there's the thing that she did, the action. And so she's divided them by judging that was good, that wasn't good. Right? So sometimes, you know, I put a stick of incense in, and it's a little 
it's leaning this way, it's leaning that way. It's... And unless it's falling over, I most of the time just leave it alone. And sometimes I do adjust it. Mm -hmm. oh, it's not up to my standard. <laughs> so it's hard not to be a thinking being. But don't let that be all you are. Yes, Ruth. I'd love to follow on, but I'm, I'm a relative beginner in this style, and this is only my second retreat. And before the first retreat, now I'm a person who spent her life being the woman who knows. <laughs> and it took me a long time, a lot of time on the cushion to figure that out. Um, and I love beginner's mind because it gives me permission to not have the answer to not know. But the habit is very deep. And when I started to come here for my first retreat, oh boy, I did my homework. <laughs> I got on the internet and I studied all the different forms of ritual. And then I caught myself and I said, wait a minute. What is this beginner's mind? You're going to a new stop? Be a beginner. Make mistakes. And boy, was that a... I'm not willing to be a beginner. I've, I'm going to feel ashamed and foolish. If I make a mistake, what will they think of me? And I, I just saw that in that moment. Where I, but, you know, that I had to have the answers. I had to have everything perfect. And actually, in another situation where I'm supervising volunteers, I always tell them at the beginning of the shift, you can't fail this. Just showing up is all that's required. Because it's what I tell myself. The beginner's mind for Suzuki Roshi, he said, um, in the, in the uh, beginner's mind there are many possibilities, in the expert's mind there are a few. Right. So if you're an expert, you already know everything. Right. And, and our urge also is to like tell everybody else. <laughs> no, hold it this way. No, do it that way. So yeah, beginner's mind is the, is the mind that's receptive. It's flexible. Soft, flexible mind is the mind of enlightenment, which doesn't mean we don't try to know things, right? We try to learn things, but being soft, flexible, yeah, is a thing. Anybody online want to say anything? You're all hiding, most of you. Hi, Linda. Linda Seligman has joined us from Chapel Hill, or Hillsboro, North Carolina. <clears throat> ah, Eric. Thanks, Rob. Uh, thank you for that talk. Um, my question for you was, um, what was the, the, the translation of like the three words again? Um, it's uh, teaching facing one, teaching facing one, and the one is just you know like the stroke that means one. It mm -hmm. doesn't. It's not like one person. It's not one dharma. It's just one, right? So it's open to a certain interpretation. Do you um, do you think there was like any humor in that response at all? The first time I read it, like it, it's kind of, it kind of felt like tongue in cheek because it's kind of like a description that could point to like infinite things, but it's also kind of describing what it is So this is like the two, to me, this is like the two truths, mm -hmm. right? So in, in Buddhism there's the many and the one, is one way of talking about it, right? So you, one phenomenon, express everything, right? Each thing expresses all things. It's completely itself, and it's completely codependent on all other things, past, present, and even future. 
Right? So that's one way of thinking about one. And some people think, well, this is like the Buddha's teaching of a lifetime. It's everything, right? It's everything, all of his teaching, revealed in different ways, piece by piece, but it's all about one thing. But I think when you know about the story of Ananda and Kashapa, you know, it's just you, <laughs> right? It's just you. It's just what's arising right now, which is always different, always changing, but it's you, co-arising with everything else. And it's another way of saying, you know, the whole is expressed completely. The entire universe is in a single blade of grass. That's what Dogen says, right? It feels like there's still some kind of a disconnect between the three-word translation and then the appropriate response thing. I have to say it a little bit. Yeah. Go ahead. If you'll feel free and come and tell me what you come up with. <laughs> yeah, but that's the literal three characters. And, and the way of reading it is, usually it's like the dominant dictionary definition is statement, a thing said. But it also, like in, our, like in English, you know, a statement is a response, a response is a statement, but that's, they're not limited. A response is not limited to a statement. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Anybody else? Yes. Oh, yeah, I was just curious about the what the character for yes is here. Oh, there are different versions of this story. The yes may be extra, like one telling of it. Mm -hmm. There's another place where the story arises. You could look it up if you want. <clears throat> this is Ananda and Kashapa, and it's in this uh, collection of enlightenment stories called the Denko Roku, the transmission of the lamp, and. This is about Zen ancestors, just the Zen ancestors, <laughs> right? So from Buddha to Dogen, which is about 1,900 years of ancestors, um, there are all these stories about how each teacher woke up themselves. And this story about Ananda is he's the second ancestor after Kashapa. And so this is in his biography, and there's more detail. You know, a lot of the detail of the story is coming from from there, um, and I think he just, yeah, the yes is like either in Japanese would be hi, you know, like I'm here, right, here I am. There, in some languages that is actually the way you say yes when someone, you say present, right, I like the, uh, in, if you answer the telephone in Greece, you say Ambros, which means go ahead. <laughs> you don't say hello. You don't say, you know, this is so and so. You just say, all right. <laughs> say it. Speak. Speak. Okay. Well, maybe that's enough for today. Thank you all for your questions.